Good morning. And so, um, you can see probably on uh, the bulletin that you received for the order of worship when you came in, the title of the sermon is taken straight from our text. It is better that one die than all die. And uh, before we go into this, um, I think there are some things about God in this sermon that could potentially shape your view of Him from this day forward. And to that end, um, I want to pray. Let's pray. Father, would you take your word? It is infallible. And in it, you have great truth, liberating, saving truth. I pray today that we would see you more fully, more as you truly are, that it would shape us, that it would change us, that it would make us into the people that you desire for us to be. And Father, for the one who teaches, I pray you give him grace, for he's a sinner, saved only by your kindness. Be with us now, in Christ's name, amen. So in my son, I have a, a boy and two girls. When my son was small, I learned pretty quickly uh, that uh, his hand-eye coordination wasn't great. As much as I wanted him to be an NFL quarterback, that wasn't going to play out. But then uh, it wasn't long before I played chess with him. And he had started playing chess in maybe, I don't know, fifth grade. He got on a chess club. And, uh, and I thought growing up, I, was, I, I played chess. So I sat down with my son to play chess, and three moves later, I was, I was done, checkmate. And I thought, I think he's good at this. And that bear uh, out over time, he was good at that. And uh, I learned that a grandmaster is what some people are called in chess. A grandmaster can play anywhere from 10 to 15 moves ahead of his opponent. It's fascinating when you think about that, to be able to play that far ahead of somebody else. And if you've ever played chess with somebody who's really good, you realize, you know, the strategy behind it and the forward thought is of utmost importance to be able to win this game we call chess. And so um, with my son, I would often play and He'd be that far ahead of me, well, probably not 10 or 15 moves, but at least three to five. And he would steal my queen, and I would scratch my head and think, how in the world did he do that? Because he evidently made moves that made me make moves, and it put me in a position to compromise the very instrument or player on the board that he wanted to take. And I would just be floored by it left scratching my head. In our text today, we're going to see that God is not just a grandmaster chess player, but God is a grandmaster when it comes to human history and when it comes to working His redemptive plan from all of history. When you read... uh, or when Shirley read the text, she may have read right over it and didn't see it. But here in a moment, 
I'm going to try to highlight it for you, and I think you will see what I'm talking about, that God is the Grand Master. And so, before we do that, I want you to look with me at John 11, 41 through 42, because in this text, not, it's really just the part above uh, where Shirley was reading, is one of the greatest texts in all the scriptures is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so in John eleven forty one, look at what it says here. And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him. And let him go. And then moving into our text. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Many of the Jews at this point believed in him. I think it's easy as we read through some of the Bible to think that none of the Jews believed. But the reality is... Lots of them did. The apostles were Jewish. These people believed. And it's also noteworthy that these people were Mary and Martha's friends. They were at their home grieving and mourning. And when Martha came back from talking to Jesus, she said, he wants to talk to you, the master, Jesus. Mary runs out. And these friends are such good friends that they come with Mary to see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, seeing his person, seeing the works of what he did to raise Lazarus from the dead, they believe. So that's one type of person that we see in our text. It is interesting to note that Mary and Martha had friends that did not believe in Jesus. And I think as Christians, it's easy for us to get in our subcultures and not have that. And by virtue of the fact that they had those friends, they were exposed to the person and work of Jesus and placed faith in him. But look with me at the second group. The first group believed in him. The second group in John eleven forty six through 48. It says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? Let me push pause for a moment. So some time obviously has passed because it took time for them to go and then gather the council, the Sanhedrin, And have this conversation. Jesus is not a part of the conversation. They went to a different location 
found the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, brought together the council. And so now this is the conversation that's happening. Here it is. <clears throat> they say, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So they've just seen Lazarus raised from the dead. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, and most commentators believe that means their synagogues. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So some did not believe, some did believe, two different groups. The ones that didn't believe went to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said, if this keeps up, Rome is going to come and smash us. And the reason he said it that way is because though they, Israel was a nation, a group of people, they did not have their own autonomy and land and a political uh, place to call their own. They were under the authority of the Roman Empire. And so what he's acknowledging is if this Messiah from our Old Testament that has been prophesied about, if this turns out to be him and he comes in and creates a political uh, reign and rule, Rome is going to come and crush it because of the, the reality that they want us under their thumb because economically it's good for Rome. You see the issue there? That's why, that's the politics behind why Jesus was crucified. And we're going to see by the end of what happens here with Caiaphas, we're going to see why they crucified Jesus in a political sense. And so it's never been more clear to me until this week's study how the politics of all of it were playing out. But God in his sovereignty had coordinated through his hand a stealth-like, in other words, you couldn't see all this going on underneath, grandmaster chess player who had been moving pieces around the board from all history to arrive at this exact situation. God was working sovereignly through these people, through these circumstances, and he's going to bring it to a crescendo. And this is why later in the text it says Jesus would slip away because it wasn't his time. In, mul in multiple places in the scriptures it says Jesus slipped away because it wasn't his time. You see, there was a grand scheme that was being worked out through the history of man. And the time had not yet come, but it was coming soon. And in this situation, God is causing the Israelites, the chief priests and the Pharisees, desires for power and for control to be ratcheted up so that in just a few moments you'll see what the end result is. But the historical context here 
is the Pharisees were not independent and Israel was not independent. They were a nation under the rule of Rome and the Israelite leaders, they had some power, but it was always under the watchful eye of Rome. So they had to be careful. And then if you look in, uh, in verse uh, 48, look with me there what he says. This is uh, Caiaphas, and he's the high priest. And he says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. And so the father is working his plan and Caiaphas is a part of it. And uh, it is interesting to me that Caiaphas says, and it sounds kind of arrogant if you look at that again, I think it is there in 48. Caiaphas says, if you let him know, it's before that. So the chief priests and the Pharisees in 47 gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performed many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, in 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that the one man should die for the people, not the whole nation according, uh, a whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas sounds arrogant when he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better that one should die than the whole nation. And here's the reason he's saying that. Jesus must go. He must die. And really what Caiaphas is saying as the high priest is it's either him or it's us. It's either him or us, so it must be him. The irony in all of this is that Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all. But God in verse 51, but God in verse 51 is making it clear that Caiaphas indeed knows nothing at all. Look at verse 51 with me where, um, and, and I don't want you to miss this because this is key to the whole text. It says, he, being Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So the text is saying, basically, Caiaphas didn't say this, but that God himself had put this thought for Caiaphas to prophesy in his tiny little brain 
as a pointer to God's sovereignty in this particular circumstance. And so when Caiaphas is saying this, remember, he's saying this to the council. He's saying this to the Sanhedrin. And so he says, Jesus must go. If he doesn't go, it's better one man die than the whole nation. That's what they hear. But you know what God was saying based on verse 51? Based on verse 51, it says, he didn't say this of his own accord, but God was prophesying through him. So Caiaphas says this, but what God is saying is, I have raised up, the time is here, I have raised up the Savior. And yes, he will die for all those who are scattered abroad. What I'm saying is, God put those thoughts in Caiaphas' mind. God was at work behind the scenes. Notice, in our text, we have what looks like and what feels like a national crisis. This before-prophesied Messiah in the Old Testament seems to have shown up on the scene, and he's doing exactly what they said he would do. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. Who can raise somebody from the dead? This guy must be the one that has been prophesied about. And if he comes and he continues to do what he's doing, all of Israel is going to follow this guy and Rome is going to come and smash us. What are we going to do? We got to kill him. We got to kill him. We got to put this man to death before we all lose our place and we lose our nation. What I'm saying is this. There seems to be a national crisis. There seems to be a bad situation that's shaken out. And here's probably what happened. You, you, you take your shot at it. Which one do you think it is? I th- I'm not going to tell you which one I think it is. Here's the two scenarios. Jesus is back here, or God is, and he's uh, taking a nap. And he's, he's been asleep for a little while, and he wakes up, and he comes over, and he looks down from heaven, and he goes, oh, no, this thing's gotten out of control. I mean... Now we got this horrible situation. They're going to rise up. Rome's coming down and they're going to smash Israel, my people. What am I to do? But then he realizes, oh, I'm God. I've got the power to fix this. I've got the power to make all this right. So in his wisdom, he takes a bad situation and he works it to good and he makes it right. I think that's the way most of us think about God. I want to tell you something that I think may be radical, but I think it's very biblical. God is never asleep. God is never taken by surprise. God is never looking in at a situation and going, oh my goodness, I have let this go way too far. In other words, the difference in understanding God's involvement in the world 
and in our lives between that what I just described and what I really believe is going on in the text is ginormous, to coin my own word, I think. And what I mean is this. If you are a believer, as hard as some things may be, God is never not involved. Never. He's never asleep at the wheel. He is always sovereignly in control of the details. He wasn't, oh no, we've got a mess down there. I'll go fix it and make it good. No, what I'm saying is God allowed the mess with a purpose. And you may say, but Clint, the world is full of really hard messes. And to that, I'd have to say, you're, you're right. And I don't get it all. But you know what else? I'm not God. And to take it one step further, you aren't either. I don't understand the decisions made in New York this week. I don't know where God is in that. But I promise you this, he's not asleep at the wheel. Do you know that when this was happening, in our text, these people, the second group, not the ones that believe, but the second group, they go, they find the high priest, they find the Pharisees, they have a council. You know word is trickling back to Jesus and his followers and you know that the followers of Christ haven't quite figured out what Jesus is doing here. They're still kind of thinking there's going to be a physical reign and a political reign. And so when Jesus is talking to them about being crucified, they're scratching their heads like, we don't get it. What are you doing? See, in time and space, with our finite little minds, we cannot grasp the sovereignty of God in all things. The detailed work, he's not not involved. Some people say, the devil's in the details. You know what the truth is? God's in the details. The devil's not sovereign over details. God is sovereign over all things. So, is this not true for your loved ones? Is this not true in your life as his people? I may not be able to see it, but he is sovereignly in control. Notice carefully what John says there about Caiaphas' words in verse 50. He says, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. And then John says the amazing thing in verse 51. He did not say this on his own accord. But being a high priest that year, he prophesied. What does it mean he did not say this on his own accord? He prophesied. In other words, God brought these words to his mind. God put them there, and God had another meaning. 
At one level, Caiaphas's words with his meaning, and at another level, there are God's words with his meaning. And the point that I'm making here is that these words sealed Jesus' death. These words were a death warrant. Caiaphas wanted Jesus dead and out of the way, and so he spoke those words. God wanted Jesus dead. Oh, what? Did I just say that? God wanted Jesus dead and risen and reigning forever, so he spoke those words. He spoke the same words to the unbelieving Sanhedrin council. They heard one thing, but to us as believers, we know those words meant God was working a work of redemption of substitutionary atonement, and he was going to gather people from all over the world. And in this text that we have today, that is what God was saying. Through Caiaphas, who was arrogant enough, if you remember his words, he talks to the council and he says, you know nothing at all. Almost like, listen to me, I'm brilliant. I will tell you. And meanwhile, God is speaking through him like he's an idiot. Caiaphas, you know nothing. You know not what I'm doing. I'm 15 moves ahead of you. I'm the grandmaster of humankind. So, it is better that Jesus die. Better than any other plan in the universe. That is what God said. Therefore, the death of Jesus was not mainly a tragic set of events which God turned out for our good. It was a loving set of events which God planned from all eternity for our good. Big difference. God himself served the death warrant on his son. He did not just predict it. He unleashed it. God the Father unleashed his wrath on his son. This word of prophecy tracked Jesus down in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it put him under arrest. There was no escape. This was the word of God. It is better that he die than the nations. It was the plan of God. Look with me at Acts 2.23. If you're questioning what I'm saying in any way. Acts 2.23. I'll give you a second to get there because I think the text is important. In Acts 2.23, it says this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God 15 steps ahead, the grand master of human history. He had a plan, but here's the crazy part. He's so involved in the details, he works through human actions. Wow. Just like the guy, or or even just like my son, who can beat me in three moves in chess. In case you're wondering, does God really put thoughts in people's heads and hearts? That makes God feel maybe, maybe wrong. Look at Proverbs 21.1, or maybe, maybe you know it. Maybe you know Proverbs 21.1. <clears throat> this is what it says. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. He turns the king's heart wherever he wills. God is sovereign. And then in Ephesians, I'm just going to kind of give you some examples. Ephesians 1.11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works. And here's where I want you to hear. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what is outside of all things? Are human beings outside of all things? No. God is working all things according to his plan. His plan. And then in in Romans 9, this was probably one of the hardest ones in all of Scripture. Talking about, is God at work in people's lives, working all things according to his will? Romans 9, 17 through 18. This is what it says. Romans 9, 17 through 18. For the scripture says that Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. I raised up Pharaoh that I might show my power in you. And that I might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, I raised you up that I would be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says this. From him and through him and to him are all things. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So on Super Bowl Sunday next week, when they flip the coin, you might say, does God care whether it lands heads or tails? The lot is cast into the lap, very similar to a coin, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I don't know why he cares who gets the kickoff, 
But I know he's in control of all things. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Think about it. From all of human history, God had to be at work orchestrating these finite details to get us all the way to the place of our text where Caiaphas would go to the council and say what he said when he said it. And then God would speak. He said, not according to his own words, God would speak through him to accomplish his purposes. Only God. It's mind-boggling. You know, if you stop and think about how could he be in control of all of this stuff, it would be so much easier in some way if God was a deist. And a deist, or the way a deist thinks about God, is God kind of like with the universe, like a clock, he wound it up, and then he backed off, and he just let it go the way it goes. However it goes, it goes. Now, I think it would cause enormous problems in other ways. But it would at least explain why some things are the way they are. What I'm saying, though, is all of these passages sweepingly say that everything humans being, human beings do is in the will of God. What should our response be to that? If you're a Christian... It shouldn't make you cry. It should give you peace because you know someone's in control. We're not in a haphazard universe where who knows what's going to happen next. I mean, there is an, el an element of that. But I know this. There is a God in control. And that should bring us peace because not only as God's children, if you are one of his, does he love you, but he is working with all of his power, which is limitless, to bring about all things for your good. And that should bring great peace. What about, it should lead us to greater worship that God is bigger than we would ever dare imagine. A God that is in control like that? That's a massive God. Massive. For that, it should bring greater faith, greater hope, greater joy. It's all working together for you as a believer in Christ. All of his love, all of his power. But what if you're outside of Christ? The greatest problem in our world, it's not what was voted on in New York. The greatest problem in our world is not, it's not poverty. The greatest problem in our world is not broken families. The greatest problem in our world is not drugs and alcohol. 
The greatest problem in our world is, is certainly not global warming. The greatest problem in our world is not sexual identity. Am I a boy or girl? The greatest problem in our world was, is, and will be tomorrow. The wrath of God which is coming down on sin. He's a holy God. And he will not allow sin to reign. He will judge it now and is judging it now. And he will ultimately judge it and do away with it. The issue is this. Be you a Christian or not a Christian, you have a sin problem. I have a sin problem. The problem with my sin is that God's wrath is raining down on my sin and your sin. And our text is telling us today, God created an answer. The answer is His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is getting ready only in a few chapters, to go to the cross and to bear the burden of sin and the wrath of the Father on sin for the people of the world. The world, like in our text, some of them believe and then some run away and say, who is this fool that thinks he's a Messiah? The Father has, a devise, he has devised a way to turn His wrath against His Son. The answer for us is, will you turn from your sin and trust Christ to be your Savior? That's the question. You can solve the greatest problem in your life today by trusting Christ. He will forgive you of your sin and He will save you for all eternity and He will begin to work all things together in your life for your good, His glory, and the sake of the nations. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word, for the reality of Your sovereignty and Your goodness in all things. Father, we thank you for um, little ones that you bring, the joy of parenting, the goodness uh, that comes with all of that. We are grateful and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.